Good morning, family. It's good to be back here with you all. We're going to continue in our study in Luke's gospel in that 13th chapter that was uh, just read for us. And, um, you know, as you guys are flipping there or scrolling there, there's a story I heard a couple years ago. And I'm not sure if it's fact or fiction, but it makes a good opening illustration anyway. And the story goes like this. There was some heroic firefighters who participated in a rescue of a building that was nearly consumed by fire by the time they got there. And the fire was so advanced when they arrived on the scene, they weren't sure if their captain was going to let them go into the building to rescue those who were still trapped in there. But it was clear that to let the men go in the building was to do it at the risk of their lives. Heroically, though, the captain and the men entered the large building, and the walls were weakening around them, and as precious moments passed, the structure began to crumble, and there were fewer and fewer options to egress or to get out of the building. And so a fireman, he encountered a man who was trapped, so he freed him and attempted to guide him to the exit, the only remaining exit from the building. And the man who was trapped, he insisted on not following the firefighter, but going to a closer exit that he knew was there because he had worked in that building for years. And so what happened was, is that this firefighter, he was saying, you know, you have to go this way. This is the only way out. We're keeping this one clear. And so, but he insisted to go a different way. The door to safety was singular. And it was not, it was only open for a short time. And so you can imagine the fireman just pleading with them. And so his insistence on a particular way out was a not, not a demonstration of cold exclusivity, but it was a sign of love and care to this stranger. So the, the way out was narrow to safety. And so at this point, you guys can see how the, that illustration sort of ties in with this text. At, at this moment in time, you know, at this, this idea, we run headlong into our pluralistic culture. Our culture insists that almost everyone besides like the most horrible individuals out there go to heaven or at least go to a better place for eternity. But in the scripture we read that the Bible says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so when we say this, we're bound to be labeled bigots at times, but, and I know, I understand that no one wants to be called a bigot, but keep in mind, you know, this firefighter as well. He was showing the man out with compassion as a sign of love to him. And so we have to remember, even when we're telling this truth with our sincere heart, even when we're telling people, gesturing towards the singular exit, that it might be met with resistance, but we have to do it in a way that loves them and shows them the only way out. And so in today's text, it features a question, uh, and Jesus was... Uh, in Jesus' time, this was a, a debate that went on, you know, for, for a while, and it was about the question, will those, who are few, or will those who are saved be few? Or to state it positively, how many will be saved? And so I think about the debates that we have today, and at least they had some serious ongoing debates at that time. People are still debating if uh, Will Smith should have slapped the comedian Chris Rock in the face. People, I heard on the radio yesterday, I'm like, y'all still talking about this? <laughs> We're over here debating about which chi chicken sandwich is better. And since I have the microphone as a devoted Chick-fil-A man, <laughs> if we're talking about the one sandwich, not the whole menu, 
I got to go with Popeyes on this one. Uh, you know, so anyway, I, 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 sorry, I, I digress, I digress. Uh, back to our, our, the weighty matters of this theological debate. <laughs> now, but we were hungry once, and we just landed in Chicago, and, we, and uh, they didn't serve any snacks on the plane, and all we had was the Popeyes, and it did not fail us. It did not fail us. So anyway, so some of the common answers that we would uh, hear to how many people could be saved by the Jewish leaders was the first one is ethnic Israel. And so um, those who are descendant of Abraham. And then also people said, well, righteous Israelites will be saved. And so not all Israelites, you know, only the ones who kept the law and the additional regulations that are given by the, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the lawyers and so forth. And the third answer to the question was, well, Israel and some Gentiles, which was a very non-traditional way of uh, thinking at the time, assuming that Jesus was going to do something uh, during his day to make salvation uh, go from Israel and beyond. So let's, let's go ahead and jump into this text where Jesus is answered, answering this, or asked this question. Verses 22 to 24 says, He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And some said to him, uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Our question that's featured today. And he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so in verse 22, we are reminded once again that Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem. And this was not simply a destination on his itinerary. When he's saying that he has his face set towards Jerusalem, he has his face set towards a particular event. And that's his crucifixion, and then later his resurrection. And so it's, it's also instructive to think about this as we're looking at the, these verses unfold in the beginning of this text, is that um, we, we have to recognize how Jesus often teaches those around him. We often think of teaching as primarily a person standing up or you know, preaching or lecturing, but while uh, there's certainly space for that, because Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word, and we see Jesus giving a lecture-style sort of presentation and the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout Luke's gospel in our study, haven't we seen Jesus just teaching along the way, being asked questions and giving answers, and this is how he taught, often as he went. We have a wandering teacher on our hands. And so this is important for us, for those who are disciples of others, which should be all of us, Amen. And so while it's essential for us to have a good grasp of the biblical story, why it's helpful for us to have a good understanding of theology, we just can't stop there. We have to understand how all that stuff engages or impacts daily life. And so as you go, your children, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, they might ask you a question that seems to be an interruption, but those interruptions are opportunities. For us to teach. Those are the opportunities for us to instruct. I'm, some of us think that the only time where we disciple others is when we set a time on the calendar, we go to Starbucks, or for those who are a little bit more bougie with your coffee, you go to black and white, or you go to, you know, um, you know anywhere around here. I mean, there's, there's so many good ones, you know. Um, we think that's the time when we are doing discipleship. Discipleship happens as you go. And there's something about the way that the truth sticks 
when you are just on the way doing something. When, you're, when your kid or your friend or your, your uh, significant other asks you a question and it just sticks in a certain way in the moment. And so be encouraged because we have to ask the Lord when we encounter these teachable moments. Ask him to allow us to identify them. Because many times we gloss over them just in, a, in, a, in, a, in the desire to be about our day. So again, they're always going to seem like interruptions, but they're really opportunities. And then also be prepared. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with biblical wisdom to pass on to others in those moments. So in verse 24, Jesus answers the question, and, and, we now, and, we, and we know by now that Jesus, Jesus is confronted with all kinds of questions, don't we? And so when, he, when he's asked a question, he doesn't always answer the question he was asked. He answers the question that they should have asked. And so Jesus, and see, I like Jesus' style, man. He just, he just does what he wants to do, but he's God, so he can do that. And so uh, Jesus was asked how many, basically, will be saved, but his response was how they are saved, and so if I can sort of interpret Jesus' action here, he is insisting that more than, uh, that he was kind of wishing that they would go out and tell people more about this person who is this Lord who saves, as opposed to pontificating about how many will hear and be saved, okay? And I'll say the same thing to my Calvinist and Arminian brothers who argue about the role of God's sovereignty in salvation. All I know is that the more and more we share the gospel, the more and more people seem to be elect. So Jesus didn't leave them hanging with an ambiguous sort of uh, uh, direction on how. Verse 24, it says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So in a time where open-mindedness is seen as a virtue, it's intolerant to hold to an absolute truth or to a, you know, a, a very poignant form of understanding something, an exclusive or a narrow way. But nobody actually lives like this. Because in our culture, to have a heart surgeon or an engineer, uh, we don't give them this sort of improvisational margin, do we? You know, it, it matters that your heart surgeon is not a relativist with a scalpel in her hands. It matters that the engineer who designed the airplane that you'll fly in this year did not just have their own interpretation about how to make the wings on the airplane. That's not cute. It's just wrong. <laughs> and so Jesus said, with the unapologetic precision of a GPS, if you want to reach the kingdom, you must go through the narrow door. And so imagine if someone came to your house as a visitor and they complain that you only offer them one entrance. They refused to enter, and even worse, they got a sledgehammer, went to the side of your house, and started to make their own entrance. That sounds silly, but this is how we often treat the kingdom of God. Uh, instead of entering through the door that was graciously given to us through the broken body and shed blood of Christ, uh, we complain that it's not the entrance that we prefer. And sometimes we even get so frustrated that we go to a completely different house and expect to enter the kingdom of God. That is not how it works. And so you're only able to walk through the door by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Paul pinpoints this when he was talking about salvation in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you are saved through faith. Again, this is how you enter the door. And it's not from yourselves. It is a gift 
It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. And in verse 24, he also instructs us to strive to enter through this narrow door. So this doesn't affirm works-based salvation or works-based righteousness. It admonishes us to strive to maintain a pure gospel, one that's pure enough to save us from our sins. And so this reminds us of what Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy in empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the essential spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And basically, what he's trying to say is that we have to eliminate any addition to the gospel or substitute from the gospel because it's no longer the gospel. No longer the means of getting us through that narrow door. And so as we walk through life, here are three ideas to help us strive to enter through the narrow way. One, renounce anything that denies salvation through Christ alone. The second thing is to reject anything that makes salvation Jesus plus anything else. And so what we see is that uh, the, the Jewish leaders, they said, okay, Jesus plus our works Jesus plus our ethnic heritage being in the line of Abraham. And sometimes today we might say, Jesus plus politics. Jesus plus my schooling preface. Jesus plus my this or that. And what we have to understand is by faith in Christ alone. And thirdly and finally, we have to affirm that again. And I quote this already once. John 14, 6. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Strive to maintain that pure gospel that's not injected with all kinds of other stuff, balloon with all kinds of other works and human practices, but keep a pure understanding of Jesus as Lord died, rose for sinners like you and me. So the second half of uh, verse 24, it says, for, uh, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. These words they do some shivers down my spine. Because there are those whom I love who don't know Christ. And a common assumption is that the width of the door corresponds with the number of people that will be able to walk through it. But if this was the case, Jesus would have answered them with the, the man with a simple yes. Will those who are saved be few? You got it. But that's not what he does. So I understand why there are many of us who carry this impression because verses like Romans 9, uh, 26 refers to the saved as a remnant. There's several uh, theological confessions that uh, have a doctrine of limited atonement. And then there's also various uh, Reformed uh, Christians that ascribe to a doctrine of election. And so together, I understand that it sounds like the saved will be few. And so it seems to me, and several other biblical commentators, though, that the statement uh, about not being able to enter in verse 25 is directed to Jesus' immediate audience, the religious leaders, those who had a mistaken means of walking through the door. You guys get me? So it's like, hey, uh, those who are saved will be few, because few amongst you guys, because you guys are looking to your, your works. You guys are looking to your heritage to take you through the door, and that's not the way it is. So Jesus' teaching in our text today corresponds with Matthew 7, 14, when he says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And it sounds like Jesus is making the same case that few will be saved. 
But Jesus isn't prophesying number. He's insisting that many of the religious insiders will not make it through the door because of all those other things that they're looking to for salvation. And so this is, this is what I love. I love, I love that you know, there's, there's a similar passage in Matthew 22, verse 14, that concludes with this wedding feast. And, and what he says is that there are those who are basically on this guest list, and then those who are on this guest list, they refuse to enter because, you know, this is obviously wedding feast, uh, kingdom. Those who are invited to be a part of this uh, wedding feast, they're like, no, 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 I, I don't walk through that door. I walk through a different door for salvation. And then the, the, the master of ceremonies was like, well, if you guys don't want to enter, I'm going to go to the highways and byways and invite all these other people in. And all those people came in. So the, the, the point is, is that Jesus was inviting people who should have known better, who were on the guest list, who were part of ethnic Israel, who knew the law, who knew the teachings, but they insisted that keeping the law was the means of salvation. But then the, 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 the master of ceremonies went elsewhere and said, okay, well, if you guys don't want to come, these people sure will. And then a whole bunch of people came. They filled up the place and had a great time. Our religiosity does not substitute or supplement the gospel. That's what he's saying. Those who are religious, are, who are depending on their religiosity to make it to the door, are going to be few. Because they will have to learn that, no, 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 no. Those things can support and uphold their faith, but it only does so insofar as it upholds Christ. And that's what the text is saying. So I'm by no means a universalist, but what I'm trying to say is that there's a whole bunch of Zacchaeus types, there's a whole bunch of Rahab types who are primed and ready to hear the gospel. And so let's get the gospel to them. The problem is not God. The problem is not the door. It's that the religious often refuse to enter through the only door that's available to them because it's not of their own works so that they can't boast about it. So, okay, I'm going to calm down. I'm getting hot up here. These lights, man, they, they, just, they just do their thing. Okay, so um, verse, how do you trans- verses 25 to 30, uh, activity around the door. So what was going on around this door? Okay, so uh, here these verses go. So when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, or then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, uh, I tell you, I don't know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And the place, the, uh, the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you, uh, but your, but you, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And so verse 25 it demonstrates that the master will eventually come and close the door. So we ought not presume upon God's grace because the door is only open for a short time. We only have this life to get it right. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. Time is running out. There is a limited time to receive this offer of salvation. So walk through the door today. 
If you're playing around with God around the door, thinking that either your works are going to get you through, that you're, that'll make you a part of the family, or like someone that you've known because, oh, I'm these people's son, I'm these people's daughter. No, it doesn't work. We have to take Christ up on the offer of salvation and walk through the door because soon that door will be slammed shut, just like the door of the ark was slammed shut when God flooded the world years ago. And so we have to walk through the door. So the parable of the, of the narrow door, it's also a lament. The master holds the, the door open, longing for people to come in, doing all that's necessary to invite us in, but eventually he declares, I do not know you, to those who hung around the door but refused to enter. Surprised by this, the people begin to plead their case. And this is the most heartbreaking imagery to me of this whole thing. They're finally standing in front of the correct door, begging God, pleading with him for mercy, but it's too late. They say to, they say to uh, Jesus, we, you, you, uh, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, uh, but they don't understand that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean that they've accepted him as Savior and Lord. And proximity to Christian things for us don't get us into the family of God either. So this is a warning to the Jewish folks who are the original hearers of Jesus' uh, story, but it's also a warning to us. We've read of the miracles of Christ in the New Testament. We've heard preaching about the gospel. We've read eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We've witnessed the Lord's Supper. But the question is, do you know him? Do you have a real relationship with him? Have you repented of your sins and confessed that Jesus is Lord? Or are you content being you know, uh, socially or superficially just around him as these folks were? Here is the tragic irony of this vision of the patriarchs. These were the men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the religious leaders claimed for their salvation. But they were there with a bunch of non-Jewish people. And so the vision uh, punctuates that salvation was not being a part of a certain family. It's believing in the promised one. And so God is not a tribal deity, meaning that he is not captive to any one single culture. And so no corner has, no culture or no uh, sort of familial background has a corner on faithfulness to Christ. This also corresponds with the, uh, John's vision in uh, Revelation chapter 7, when there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This demonstrates how inclusive Christianity is, but at the same time, how exclusive it is as well. So on the one hand, Christianity is inclusive because it's not an ethnocentric belief system. You don't have to be from a certain background to believe in it. And so uh, on the other hand, Christianity is exclusive because it's, the only those, it's for only those who bow their knee before the Savior as Lord. According to Jesus himself, the way to salvation, as you said, is narrow. So after being engaged with this first interruption... He fields uh, another sort of interruption from his favorite trolls, the Pharisees. Verses 31 to 33 says this. At, at that time, uh, at, that very, at that time, at that very, oh my goodness. I, I, when I read, I read, I, I say, I, I, prepare, I prepare. If I can talk, <laughs> when I prepare, I read a whole bunch of translations and they, I kind of mesh them all together and give my own sort of version. But the ESV says this. Um, <laughs> At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, 
Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Jesus is calling people names. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I, tell, or I finish my course. Nevertheless, verse 20, 33, I go on my way, uh, my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for, I can, I cannot be, uh, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And so uh, for some of the Pharisees, they, they, they come to Jesus with some intel. And so if I was Jesus, I'd be giving the Pharisees some side-eye right now. You know, because after all, they were the ones, what have they ever done for Jesus, right? The, the, all through the gospel, these have been the very people who have been trying to get Jesus crossed up in his words. In addition, Jesus just got done warning them that they're about to miss the kingdom of God because they're looking to their own works for salvation. So if, if, and so if I was Jesus and these dudes came to me trying to help me, I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. But at the same time, there, there is some reason for there to being a, a credible threat here. Uh, because, as we know, Herod had already murdered his, uh, you know, John, John the Baptist's cousin. And then, presumably, uh, he wouldn't think about, twice about killing another prophet. Uh, and then, certainly, uh, by now, Herod is hearing about all the success that Jesus is having, gathering this, this, this following. And then, also, Herod was a fairly insecure man. And so he probably wouldn't want, you know, there to be this uprising against him and even jealousy and all that kind of stuff. So if Herod started sending death threats, I'd probably listen, even though the source was one that was unlikely. <laughs> and so um, here is his, here's his Jesus' response. Again, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. So Jesus' description of Herod was right on the money. He called him a fox. A fox is cunning and predatory, but relatively weak. In Jewish culture, the term fox typified something that was small and devious, the opposite of strong, straightforward, and upright. So needless to say, Jesus was not going to get pushed around by some two-bit leader like Herod uh, off of his mission that he has set before the foundations of time. So after fielding this threat from Herod, Jesus' sorrow for Jerusalem hit him afresh and he lamented over the city that was intended to be this sort of beacon of light. But instead, there were those who killed the prophets. And so in 34 and 35, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing Behold, uh, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' compassion for the city just shines through. And so it's one thing to work for something, but it's another thing to work and love the people you are serving. You guys get that? It's one thing to just proclaim the good news, this truth that is so exclusive. And by the way, that's not popular right now. So you, so you have to carry it with compassion. Jesus loved the people that he was trying to minister to. And so, I mean, this reminds me of, of an early lesson from marriage. I want you to want to do the dishes, right? So, you know, you need to do it as if you care. Okay, maybe that's just me. But, 
Jesus, is, he, Jesus longed to gather is, the people of Israel in and care for them, and he was even aware that his murderers resided there. This is the kind of compassion, and this is the example that we ought to follow as we're trying to love people. The love that Jesus had for Jerusalem is a model for us. Uh, the lost and the sinners that were there, he loved them. And when people see uh, people, you know, when we, when we see people living in rebellion against God, we see thieves, we see traffickers, we see crooked business people, we see crooked politicians, and all these people living for themselves, we are prone to push away from them. But what did Jesus do? He pressed in to the point where he died for them. And so just a couple of sort of concluding thoughts today. If you're a person who doesn't know Jesus, the application is simple. Walk to the door. Don't be content with hanging around it, with you know, being okay with Jesus as your homeboy. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Walk to the door. All you have to do is ask. All, everything that is necessary for you, for you to walk through the door has been done. Just receive the gift that's being handed out to you. I, 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 I pray that even today, that you will walk through that door. And for the believers in the room today, also, show someone the door. Show others the door. Today, Jesus extends his gracious invitation through the church through our message of forgiveness and our ministries of mercy. And here's some, here's some practical tips. I know that I can't list everything, but here are some practical ways that you can be the person that shares this truth with others and helps usher them through the door. The first one is live like Christ. Pray for the people you're longing for Jesus to save. Show mercy to people who are lost. Spread the wings of Christ's compassion over them and direct them towards the door where safety is found. You know, we often say they won't hear our message before they know that they're loved. And there's so many people that reject not Christ, but his people. And we know ultimately we're judged by our, our acceptance or rejection of Christ, but let it not be so that we are a stumbling block to people hearing the message of truth. So let not our lives uh, contradict the truth that we say that we uh, uphold. And second one, we need to uh, rightly order our affections. And so make sure that your convictions are, are, are ordered, uh, your, your, uh, your affections are ordered appropriately. Many times, you know, if, if someone knows you and they don't understand that your primary affection is for Christ, it muddles everything up. Are you more conviction, are you more compassionate, not compassionate, what's the word? Are you more passionate? There you go. It was, it was in the word, but are you more passionate about your political affiliation or some economic sort of system or some fill in the blank, whatever it is, they need to know that our affections are ordered. We can be passionate about lots of stuff, certainly. We can have good faith conversations about lots of things. We're a family. There's a bunch of us. Lots of us are going to think different ways, but we have to understand, and the people out there need to understand that you are someone whose affections are ordered with Christ clearly at the top. And then the third thing, share Christ amid suffering. On Thursday morning, the elders, were, we got together, and we were talking about some natural opportunities to share the gospel with our coworkers and our neighbors and things like that. And one conclusion that I resonated with was sharing Christ in the midst of suffering. Either the person you're talking to suffering to give them hope and to say, hey, this, I mean, this, is, this is not the end all. There's so much more to this existence. But, or, or even in the midst of your own suffering. 
I remember when my, uh, my wife and I, we were awaiting the, 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 you know, likely in what was eventually the death of our first daughter. And I cannot tell you how many times I was able to share the gospel. Because people were like, how are you guys even holding together? I don't know how many medical professionals that gathered around as we were talking about hope in Christ. We named our daughter Hope for that reason. And so if you are in, if you're, if you're like, hey, I want to share the gospel with my neighbors or with my friends, but when do I do it? How do I do it? Well, pain is always an invitation to introduce hope. Suffering is always an opportunity to talk about the one who suffered in our place because he knows this is broken now because of sin. And one day he will come back and what he started he'll finish and there'll be no more tears in that place. There's hope for this. This is not forever. The last thing is ask good questions. So as you have conversations with, with people about ultimate things, ask questions about their answers to those questions. And show them the frailty of the foundations that they have. And it might be that many people, it's their first time actually answering those questions out loud. Speaking those questions out loud. And, it, and then it will open up an avenue for, to deliver the truth that actually will save them. And so asking good questions. I, I love apologetics. I love having a, an answer for our faith. But don't put all that pressure on yourself. Make them give you the answer. <laughs> And so that's just an, another great way of conversationally engaging people, compassionately understanding where they are, pointing people towards the door, the only door that salvation is behind. We live in a, a culture where there's a huge hallway, and everyone is looking for uh, hope and prosperity and for joy and for peace and for everything. And then we say, you know, often the culture says, just pick a door, any door. But us, we have to say, like that fireman. This is the door. This is the only door where you'll find any of that stuff. So may we be a people who run towards our Savior, holding the door for others. You know, I, 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 met, I met little Dylan on, on Friday, and he was telling me he was at Wendy's, telling people about God. And so maybe be like our little brother, who's seven. He, I see you, Dylan. You're looking around. Me? Yeah, you. I'm talking to you, buddy. Yeah, peace. May we be like our Savior, compassionately welcoming people to the door, telling people, even at Wendy's, you're at Wendy's, right, bro? Yeah, at Wendy's, <laughs> about, about who is the one who is the master of the ceremony, and that's only one, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you haven't left us alone. We, we love you. We, we know that you are not a God who is just trying to be a tyrant, having us go through this narrow way, but God, you're pointing us to that way because there is a way. And for that, we thank you. And I pray that we who have found that way will help others find it because we're just, you know, one sinner helping another sinner find the way. And so, God, we're grateful to you. We thank you. We praise you. We, we give you all the glory in your name. Amen.